0: As an old man, John the Apostle received a vision of heaven. And it revealed to him things about Jesus and about the church and about the end of time. And John wrote those visions down in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Now, it is called Revelation, not Revelations. And so, just uh, so you know, it's the revealing of Jesus. And Jesus himself said to John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, write on a scroll what you see and send it to these seven churches Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I was thinking this week, we've got people in our church who have traveled all over the world. Some of you with the military, others on mission trips, maybe a vacation, maybe a cruise. We have other people in our church who have lived all their lives in Nelson County and have rarely even left the state of Kentucky. Now, one type of person is not better than the other. It just makes me wonder, when you hear names of far-off places like Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, what kind of things come to mind for you? Personally, I went to Smyrna Elementary School. Some of you may be fans of the Philadelphia Eagles, but I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. I don't think those were the places he was thinking of when he dictated these letters to John. These are cities from the ancient world, cities that maybe most of us have never heard of. Certainly most of us will never visit. These churches, because he's talking about the churches in those cities, they're far different from our church here in Nelson County in Bartstown, And yet, friends, I am convinced that the messages that Jesus had delivered to those churches 2,000 years ago are every bit as relevant today as they were in the first century. Now, I've read some authors who suggest that these seven letters were not really meant to go to seven specific congregations. Rather, these guys say that the seven churches represent seven ages Of time in the church. For instance, they would say that the letter to the church in Ephesus was talking about the church in the first century when it got off the ground. The letter to the church in Smyrna was talking about the persecuted church of the second and third century. The letter to the church in Pergamum was talking about the the corrupted church that came out of the the roman empire the letter to the church of thyatira is talking about the state-run church of europe during the middle ages and and on and on down to the seventh church laodicea that was a lukewarm church and they say that's talking about the church of today but i got to be honest with you i disagree with that interpretation for one thing Yes, the American church oftentimes is lukewarm today, but churches in persecuted countries like India and China and Pakistan and Nigeria, man, those churches are incredibly faithful despite the attack that they're under, and to call them lukewarm would be an insult. At the same time, back during the early centuries of the church, yes, many people were faithful, but false teaching was a huge problem back then every age of the church from the first century to the 15th century to the 21st century every age there have been people in the church who are faithful people who are not so faithful and frankly there have been people who are unfaithful and we've seen that over the centuries now while people are on the spectrum from faithful to unfaithful and everywhere in between in the church, I think it's also true that churches tend to develop a certain culture. They develop a reputation. They develop a personality. Some churches are known for being biblical, some liberal. Some churches are friendly and some, frankly, are, are cold. Some churches are relevant. Others, we might say, well, that was, that was irrelevant. Irrelevant. Some churches are traditional, some contemporary, some wear matching t-shirts on stage, other people are non There's all different kind of churches. But Jesus sent these letters to these specific churches because they were a cross-section in many ways of what the church has been throughout history and will be till the end of time. Some of these letters, as the guy said in the video when we opened today, some of the letters were very positive, some very negative. But the majority of the letters contained both affirmation for what the church was doing right and then criticism for things that needed to change. And I believe that we can learn something from both the successes and failures of those seven early churches. But maybe you're wondering why this series, hashtag up to us. Why t-shirts up to us? Well, two reasons. One, I think someday we want to hear affirmation from Jesus about our church, not criticism. We want to make sure that the scathing part of these letters is not directed at us. It's up to us to make sure that we operate in a Christ-like way. And secondly, Jesus established the church to carry out his work in the world. If the gospel is going to be shared, if heaven's going to get bigger and hell smaller, if we're going to lead people to Jesus Christ, it is up to us to share the gospel, to be his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece in this world. We are Jesus' plan A, and there is no plan B. It's up to us. So you might say it's up to us to avoid God's judgment for the church It's up to us to do God's work in the world. My friend Dave Hamlin over at Shelby Christian said it this way He said God wants to do something huge in our church this year He said are we ready for God to move if we are it's up to us Because he's going to do it through us now in just a minute I want to read to you what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus the first church that he addressed But before we get to the text I want to show you just a one minute further video so that you can see what Ephesus was like in the first century. Check this out. So Ephesus was like Washington DC, New York City, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. It was the de facto capital of the entire province of Asia Minor at that time. It's estimated that about 250,000 people lived in the city in the first century. Ephesus was prominent. It was vivacious, it was, it was culturally dynamic, it was architecturally significant, it was intellectually profound, but sadly it was also the most immoral city in the entire province. The temple of Artemis, or Diana, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, as the guy in the video said. The structure itself was amazing, and yet the pagan worship that was led there took people into sexual depravity of all kinds, unimaginable. Essentially, what happened in Ephesus stayed in Ephesus. You know what I'm talking about? Well, at the other end of the spectrum, there was a church in Ephesus that was started by Paul. It was led by Timothy. It was taught by Apollos. It was served by Aquila and Priscilla. And later, John himself was there. It's an impressive staff, kind of a who's who of the heavy hitters from the the book of Acts. But listen to what Jesus told John to write to the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2, 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, time out. Let's clear up some things right away. It starts out a little bit strange. In the first verse, we've got one angel, seven stars, seven golden lampstands, somebody walking around in a partridge in a pear tree. Okay, sorry. So there's just a lot of stuff happening right here at the very beginning. Who is this angel of the church in Ephesus? Where the Greek word here for angel can also mean messenger. These were the heavenly messengers that are going to deliver the letters. They might have been heavenly messengers, angels. They might have been just regular old people, messengers, pony express, camel express, whatever it was, to get the message to the churches. We don't know if it's a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger. We're not quite sure because the word could be either way. As far as the stars and the lampstands in this text, back in chapter 1 of Revelation we learned the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. The seven stars represent the angel or messenger who was assigned to each church. And the one who's walking among the lampstands or the churches, the one holding the stars in his right hand, was Jesus himself. Okay? So that just kind of identifies some things. Let's pick up in verse 2. He says this to the church. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary. Jesus begins with this glowing report on the church in Ephesus. Not, not only are they protectors of the truth, they're hard workers. They persevere until the job gets done. They're like the elves in Santa's workshop. As soon as Christmas is over, they can't wait to get started making toys again for next year. These men and women in Ephesus, they are relentless. In fact, the, the Greek word here for work... Suggest projects that require a great deal of energy. We're talking about hard work. These church members did not mind rolling up their sleeves. Getting their hands dirty. They were not the kind who would do a job only halfway. They were faithful. They were committed to the core. Man, you ask most preachers. A church like this sounds like a dream come true. If I had a group of people like that. They might say, man, we turn this whole city upside down. Now with a kind of a glowing report like that of this church, what could possibly be wrong? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, remember, the lampstand represents the church. Jesus says, sure, you work hard. Sure, you're busy. Sure, you defend the truth. Sure, you stay away from those who teach false doctrine. But you better wise up. That was his message to this church. You better wise up and get back on track or I'm going to come and shut you down. There's an old saying that if Satan can't get you to be bad, he'll get you to be busy. In other words, we can become so busy even doing good things, volunteering for every ministry under the sun and making sure that we serve day in and day out. Now we're following the rules and we're keeping away from those who don't. And we get so busy doing good things that we can lose our heart and soul in the process. And we end up doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He did not start with obeying the Old Testament law, following the Ten Commandments. Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. He didn't start with any of that kind of stuff. He said, the most important thing of all is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second thing is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's why the first two points of our mission statement say we exist to love God and love people. That's why we're here. That's what we're commanded to do first. Now, we do that through worship and serving and prayer and Bible study and supporting missions and taking mission trips. All the kinds of things that Mark Mobley talked to us about last Sunday. But it all begins with loving God and loving people. The church in Ephesus was doing all the right things, but they had lost their love. They weren't motivated by a heart of devotion or compassion. They they had become legalistic. They were narrow-minded and harsh. They were busy. They were faithful. They were doctrinally sound, but they had no soul. And friends, I can't tell you how many churches I have visited or preachers I've met that made me think of, of this. Legalistic churches, leaders who follow rules, they stay busy. There's lots of programs, but they've lost their love for those on the outside. There's no longer a rush of emotion in their worship of God, their relationship with God who's blessed them so abundantly. See, they're all about being right, but there's no sense for them of what it means to show grace or show compassion. I heard somebody say one time, it is hard to preach the love of God with a clenched fist. Well, that was no problem for the church in Ephesus. In fact, Jesus actually commends them for one more thing here in Revelation, but it's kind of what I would consider a side door compliment because it carried some baggage along with it. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 6, he says, You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans will come up again in a couple of weeks. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that right now. Suffice it to say that the Nicolaitans live lives of unrestrained indulgence. Unrestrained indulgence. They had bought into the pagan culture of Ephesus. And Jesus does not say that he hates them. He says he hates their practices and he's glad that the church in Ephesus hates their practices too. Only I think we have to assume this in the context here that the church in Ephesus was not trying to reach the Nicolaitans. They were not trying to share the gospel with the Nicolaitans. They just hated everything the Nicolaitans stood for. And so Jesus agreed with the Ephesus church. Yes, their behavior is terrible but he did not like the fact that they had a closed door policy. Their insistence on building walls instead of building bridges their refusal in the church to reach out to those who were outside the church they had lost their love listen to these phrases again from verses 4 and 5 first jesus says you have forsaken your first love let that sink in they they used to really love god they used to really love people. They had their priorities in line. They were passionate about their Father in Heaven, their Lord Jesus Christ, their brothers and sisters in Christ, the, those who were on the outside who were desperately lost. Man, they really got it at first. But over time, their faith became a checklist of things to do and things not to do. No passion for God, no passion for other people. You know we see this all the time in dating relationships and in marriages when i was in high school i once dated a girl for eight months eight months in high school was my record in fact eight months was my record until i started dating a girl named gail foster i've dated her as of february 12th for 40 years that was the date of our first date she practically begged me to go out with her that is such a lie (laughs) that is such a lie (laughs) I was a freshman she was a senior I had to beg her to go out with me Uh, okay now look in high school eight months felt like so long now 40 years it's going great why well for one reason I was immature in high school no offense to our high schoolers here I just was not the spiritual giant then that I am now you know what I'm saying I was immature. I was crazy about my girlfriend in high school until I wasn't. Short-term love may not be such a big deal in high school, though it can hurt like crazy sometimes. But I'll tell you something, friends. In marriage, short-term love is tragic. I mean, sure, we all get it that romance fades over time. But deep love persists. Mature love endures. And when we forsake our first love, either through adultery or through apathy, we are failing to honor our marriage vows. We promised to love and to cherish. We promised to, to honor and protect. I've, I've used this passage of Scripture in Revelation to talk about marriage. Talk about how you have forsaken your first love. It's an important warning in marriage, but I'm telling you something. It's an indictment in the church. That's why in verse 5, Jesus says this, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. He actually gives us three steps to get your heart back into the relationship. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. In marriage, or even in a long-term dating relationship, remember what it was like back at the beginning how you talked about everything, how you couldn't wait to be together, how you were always holding hands and you gave gifts to each other and you went out of your way to be kind. It was all about making the other person feel special, feel important. He says, remember that. It's crucial whether you're talking about a marriage or the family or the church or God or lost people. Remember what it was like back at the beginning when you were so passionate and you cared so deeply. And then Jesus says, repent. We need to maybe honestly admit that we've been going through the motions, that our heart really hasn't been in the relationship for a long time. Maybe you need to admit that to your spouse. Maybe you need to say that to your kids or to your best friend. Especially we need to be able to say to God, I've lost my first love and remember to repent does not mean to just stop doing something that's bad it literally means to turn around and go in the right direction and that's where the return part comes in don't Keep doing or not doing what you've been doing or not doing. Return. Go back to the way things were before. In marriage, maybe that means you go out on some dates again. You give gifts again. You offer meaningful touch again. You look for ways to show your spouse that you love them, value them, how important they are to you. And when it comes to faith, it means that we pour ourselves into our relationship with God and with other people. We can can spend time in God's word to reignite our faith, spend time in prayer, volunteer to serve, get in a Bible study, listen to Christian music that just really speaks your language. Friends, we can't just coast along and stay faithful. We have to immerse ourselves in the things of God. I got a text the other day from a friend of mine who lives in Indiana, and he said, please pray for me. I want to be on fire again. Please pray for me. I want to be on fire again. I can probably count on one hand how many times somebody has said something like that to me. Many of us lose our fire, and we just never even notice. And so we need to pray, God, stir me up again. Help me be on fire again, and then do something about it, right? Step it up. Do something intentional. Get more involved, not less involved. This is what happens. The fire starts to go out, and we pull away. That's when we need to press in more than ever to re-engage. Love is active, not passive. True love is a decision. It's not an emotion. That's the bottom line today. True love is a decision, not an emotion. And that applies in marriage, sure, but it applies with God and the church and the world as well. How we love is a decision. Remember remember Stephen Covey, he's the guy who wrote the seven habits of highly effective people. One of his big phrases was, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And friends, love is the main thing. Right, I mean sure, what we believe is important and how we behave is is really, really important too. But if we don't love God and love people, the other stuff doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 13 is very clear about that. Love is the main thing. And Jesus says here to the church in Ephesus, man, you guys are super busy, and you're highly effective. That church, you're running like a top. But if you don't start loving God and loving each other and loving the lost, I'm going to come down there, I'm going to pull the plug on you. And he meant business. Now, there's good news in this passage, too. It's not too late for Ephesus. There was still hope. In verse 7, Jesus said... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says to those of you who are willing to hear, listen, change course, you can renew your love. You do that, you're going to be able to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. I mean, he says, don't miss this. You can turn things around. Do that and all will be well. But if you just stay on the course you're on, you're going to suffer the consequences. Now, I've talked with some of you about this before. Several years ago, I started choosing a a word and a verse to focus on each year. A friend of mine challenged me back at the end of 2019 to do this. And so in 2020, my word was joy, which ended up being very appropriate since COVID hit in March. My verse was always be joyful, never stop praying, give thanks in all circumstances. My word in 2021 was healing. So weary from all the COVID stuff and thinking about God renewing me and renewing our church. And the Bible says the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, thinking about Christ. My word for 2022 was stand, thinking about That we take our stand against the enemy, put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may take your stand. And that became the key word for me. My word for 22, I decided a few weeks ago, is listen. James chapter 1, verse 19 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I want to listen more. I want to listen to God more. I want to listen to other people more. Jesus says, listen. Listen up. It is not too late. I want you to remember how you used to be on fire. I want you to repent for your lack of love. And I want you to return to the way you lived before. True love, friends, is a decision. It is not an emotion. Now understand, Jesus is talking to the church. He's talking to believers, to Christians. If you're not a Christian, you do not need to return to the way things were before. You need to repent and turn to God. But for those of us who've been following God for a long time, the danger is that we start going through the motions, that we miss the essence of the gospel. We need to love, not fall in love in some kind of sappy way. We need to choose to love. We need to remember, repent, and return. Love is the heart and the soul of the gospel. And that's what he says to the church in Ephesus. Now, as we wrap up, I want to share with you uh, two things from the news this past week. Ironically, both of these involved the city of Buffalo, New York. Unless you were off vacationing somewhere warm during Christmas weekend, and we hate you, um, unless you were off somewhere warm, okay, you know that this was one of the coldest Christmases on record. Now, we did not have a blizzard here, but we had more inches of snow than we had degrees on our thermometer. But Buffalo, New York, had a blizzard, full-blown. 52 inches of snow fell there Christmas weekend. Well, I heard a report on the news this past week on the radio about a couple in Buffalo who had decided because of the bad weather, they weren't going to go anywhere for Christmas. After all, they were just going to stay home, have a quiet Christmas, just the two of them. Sometime Christmas Eve, in the middle of that blizzard, there was an unexpected knock at their door. They opened it, and there was a man from South Korea who spoke kind of broken English, and he explained to them that he was part of a group of nine from South Korea. They were on their way to Niagara Falls for Christmas when their van got stuck in the snow. That's for illustrative purposes only. That's not their van. I just saw that picture. <laughs> I wanted to kind of give you an idea of what's going on here, okay? There's a lot of snow. All right, a lot of snow. All right. These guys didn't know what to do. The road crews were covered up. They couldn't get any help. So this couple invited all nine of them in and they were there for three days. They cooked together. They celebrated Christmas together. They loved each other in a Christ-like way. Were any of them Christians? I had no idea. All I can tell you is that's what love looks like. That that's tangible. That is real love love. And I'm going to suggest to you today that doing something decisive to show love to other people, the people maybe that you live with, maybe the people that you worship with, maybe the people that you know who are far from God, taking some kind of decisive step like that toward renewing your your heart and your soul, man, it will work wonders for you when you just decide to do something that's extravagant and loving. We're going to give you an opportunity this month to do something like that. This is unapologetically a commercial break, okay? On Thursday, January 26th, you don't have to have nine men from Korea stay in your home, but Nelson Christian Church is going to provide a meal for the faculty, students, and parents at Barstown Primary School. They came to us, because we've helped them before, and said, hey, would you all do snacks for this event? And we took it up a notch, said, no, we want to offer a meal. We think more people will come. And so we need about 15 crock pots of soup or chili to be made that we can take over and serve. If you can go and serve but you can't cook, that's fine. If you can cook and can't go, that's fine. But we have signups for that. We'll talk more about it later. I just want you to know that how we serve in the community shows the community that we love them and care about them. And that's what we are about. And I think getting involved in things like this helps us renew our love. True love is a decision. It's not an emotion. And we want to do that specifically, intentionally on January 26th. Okay, here's the other story from the news this week. Those of you who are football fans know all about this. You probably watched events unfold last Monday night during the game between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills. In the first quarter of that game, Bills player DeMar Hamlin tackled receiver T. Higgins. Hamlin stood up after the tackle and then he fell over backwards. And 65,000 fans in the stadium and 21 million viewers on ESPN held their breath as Hamlin literally died on the field and CPR had to be administered. He was revived. He was brought back. They took him to the hospital. They had to do that again because of cardiac arrest. But I'm glad to tell you that as of Friday, he was the breathing tube was out. He was talking to his family and it looks like He's well on his way to recovery. But to the credit, I believe, of the NFL, not only was the rest of the game canceled, but announcers and fans all over the country prayed to God for mercy and for healing. One sportscaster prayed on the air for God to spare Hamlin's life. And for a brief moment, everyone was crystal clear that football was not the main thing. That winning a football game was not the main thing. And I think that it brought us together in a unique way. But friends, as believers in Jesus, we know that physical life is not the main thing either. We know that health is not the main thing either. The main thing is love for God and love for each other. And that's what unites us with the Lord and brings us ultimately into his presence. Remember Repent and return. Love like you used to love or begin to love for the very first time. True love is a decision. It's not an emotion and it's what we are called to do in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we talk often, we sing often about how you love us, all you've done for us through your son Jesus. And God, we want to just renew our love for you. Sometimes, the love can grow cold. Sometimes it does in human relationships. Sometimes it does, Lord, with you. Would you just stir in us that passion for you and for others? God, would you remind us of all we have to be grateful for and how it should just pour out of us? God, I pray that as we take tangible steps to show our love, that it will renew our love. And I thank you for these messages in the book of Revelation that remind us of these important truths we love you lord help us in those times when we don't show it very well that's our prayer in christ's name amen